Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. Thank you. 
This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today it's my interview with Yasmin Khan. She's author of Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. We discover the wonders of quick-pickled avocados and the meaning of the expression, may you arrive as part of the family and tread an easy path as you enter. That is just one of my favorite expressions in Palestinian communities. And whilst hospitality exists, you know, everywhere in the world, it's really hard to, to kind of be traveling through the West Bank and not get invited to someone's house for dinner very quickly. Also coming up, we share three tricks for using dull knives. Dr. Aaron Carroll sets the record straight on dehydration. But first, I'm chatting with Jonathan Townsend. He's the star of the hit YouTube channel Townsend's in which he recreates 18th century American recipes, all the while using tools and wearing clothes from that era. Jonathan, how are you? I am doing very well. So let's start with the kitchen. What was the kitchen like? Uh, You've spent a lot of time in those kitchens. What's the good news and what's the bad news? Well, I don't know if there is any good news. Uh, it's mostly bad news. The, the standard kitchen in the 18th century, uh, at least for a regular person, maybe not you know, very, very well to do, is, hey, it's a room with a big fireplace and that's it. There are no refrigerators. There is no running water. There's no place to get rid of your water most of the time. And you've got a nice big smoky fire uh, across the room. Uh, I noticed you used the classic 18th century whisk, which are a bunch of twigs. And I noticed in Fanny Farmer that they would say whip egg whites for like half an hour, you know? Yeah. I I never understood that. Could you get to the bottom of that for me? Even even with those sort of rudimentary whisks. Really? I mean, you'd really have to for half an hour? Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, today we're used to using, you know, mechanical appliances in the kitchen and and we can get the right kind of consistency after five or 10 minutes or whatever it is. But in in that early time period, whisking an hour was very common. You'd see it showing up in the cookbooks. And that's why those items were very expensive. And that's why big households had kitchen servants to help them do that. I found that I had trouble with recipes from the late 1800s. You're dealing with a different century, but in part because the ingredients were different, the cream, eggs, et cetera. So what have you found about translating recipes from the 1700s to the 21st century in terms of the differences in the fundamental ingredients? You certainly have to do some uh, adjustments, and if you don't test it beforehand, you never know. You never know exactly what you're going to get. Occasionally, we'll do an episode like that where we just, you know, boom, let's just try this right off the bat. Uh, Their flowers were different. They didn't have the same kind of high-gluten flowers that, uh, that we expect today. And so many of the ingredients vary. And, of course, they don't include any amounts most of the time. And even even some of the ingredients, you're not sure what item they actually mean. Uh, Something like currants. A recipe will say currants, and it could mean the little tiny grape, or it could mean the berry, the ribes currants that grow on bushes. Two totally different things, but they show up indiscriminately in, in recipes, and you can't tell which one's which. Uh, you did a, uh, I saw videos in a bunch of recipes. You did well-to-do rice pudding and then poor man's rice pudding. Yeah. The well-to-do rice pudding uses ground rice and, and you describe what that is. And it's not what, what I thought it was. So what is ground rice? 
Well, in that in that circumstance, it was uh, like a cracked rice. Um, it wasn't ground out to a flour, uh, so it still had some some tooth to it. So it's sort of half half ground. Uh, cream of rice is a very similar in its kind of consistency, uh, sort of rice in a sand uh, format, I guess. And then the poor man's version was how is that different than the uh, wealthy? Well-to-do. Well, the wealthy one, like so many of the recipes of the time period, you use – it's much richer. So that one's going to use more eggs, cream instead of milk. Uh, it might even have something like a, a wine in it. And the poor man's rice pudding is like a simple rice pudding today, very, very simple. And uh, the, I don't know, the rich one, it just, did, it just didn't work for me. You know? <laughs> Maybe it needed just a little bit more punch with the, with the spices. Spices is an, another way that you would make a, something expensive in the time period. And uh, one of the things that shows up all the time is nutmeg. And I think most of the time the nutmeg is really there in the 18th century to say, look how expensive this recipe right. was, you know. Could you just describe what it would be like, uh, sort of day-to-day cooking in those kitchens? Was it really cold in the winter? It was really hot in the summer, just to give us a feeling of, of being there? Yeah, it, it would be a hard day's work. And those kitchens are not easy to work within. They were dangerous you know, you were you were likely to get injured with the hot fire right there, <laughs> and uh, it, it's going to be cold, certainly cold in the wintertime, and very hot, very hot and smoky in the summertime. That's why we have summer kitchens. So, so a, a summer kitchen, you mean a, a, a kitchen detached from the house? Exactly, right. outdoors. Right. Even uh, George Washington, if you go to Mount Vernon, that whole kitchen uh, part of the house looks like it's connected. But, of course, it's a totally separate building because kitchens burnt down all the time. And you didn't want that to – it's like, well, if my kitchen's going to burn down, it won't burn down my whole house. Right. Uh, now, I read in the 19th century with the coal stoves, they would have the stove at different temperatures at different points in the day. For breakfast, they want a really hot fire, Right. And then if they were baking in the afternoon, they'd have a moderate ovens. Was that true too uh, in a fireplace where you might have different kinds of fires at different points in the day? Well, I think certainly true. And and also different kinds of fire going on in different parts of your hearth. So you had that sort of option. Unlike a stove where, you know, the whole thing is going to be one temperature, you could have a brisk fire going in one corner and low coals going on in another corner so that you'd have a lot of options. So you spent a lot of hours in a 18th century kitchen. What, what is it that we've lost that you would like to put back into the modern repertoire? Is there some satisfaction working in that kitchen you don't get today? I think there's a lot of satisfaction there in that, that taking the time to cook things uh, instead of just, you know, we're all about how fast we can, can we make this happen? Um, and, and instead it's taking the time. Uh, that makes a big difference. And if I was going to add, you know, one more quick component, it would be fire and wood smoke that changes everything. Everything that comes out of that kitchen is just different. I think we missed that uh, in today's cookery. Jonathan, thank you so much. Well, I've had a lot of fun. Thank you a lot.
That was Jonathan Townsend. His YouTube channel is called Townsend's. Most of your radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Now it's time to answer your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Where are you calling from? Fresno, California. How can we help you today? Well, I have a question about making a strawberry cake. I've made it multiple times, and... The first few times that I've made it, it was delicious, but the cake texture came out really dense. And I was uh, actually out of town um, at my mom's house, and I was making it again. And she only had a stand mixer that had, instead of a paddle attachment, all it had was whisk attachment. And when I used that attachment, I don't know if it was that or what happened, but the cake came out perfect. It was really nice and light and fluffy. So I'm just wondering, could that have done something different, or was there something else going on maybe that made it light and fluffy? What's the recipe? Are you beating whole eggs with sugar to start, or what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I think that's the answer right there. That's the answer. What did you used to use before you used a whisk? Just a spoon? A paddle attachment. A paddle attachment, yeah. No, it's absolutely the whisk. Right. The whisk will incorporate more air. And this cake depends in part on incorporating air into the whole eggs and the sugar to get a nice light texture to yeah. them. The paddle's good for batters that don't really depend on incorporating a lot of air. Right. I so, mean, especially when you have a high percentage of eggs, that's sort of part of their role there is to add leavening, you know, they just naturally without a leavener. I imagine there's a leavener in the recipe too. Yeah, baking uh, powder. Yeah. You ended yep. up using the right tool for the job. Right. <laughs> the recipe called the for a paddle? That's silly. Yeah, the recipe calls for a paddle. You know, and that, I don't know. You know, one other thing I was thinking was because it says to uh, microwave the strawberries and then strain them and then reduce them into a syrup and down to, I think, a quarter cup or whatever. And I was wondering maybe in the past, if I didn't reduce the liquid enough and it was too much liquid, could that have something to do with it? Or no? Or no? Is it just the... Not really. I don't think it'd make that much of a difference. I, I mean, if you had a cup of liquid versus a quarter, that might make a difference. Yes. But it sounds like you're talking about a tablespoon or two, right? Difference. Yeah, a couple yeah. tablespoons. No, yeah. that wouldn't it's, matter. It's, right? it's the whisk. It's the whisk. The question is, do you have a stand mixer with a whisk attachment? Oh, yeah, I definitely yeah. do. It. Oh, good. Well, I'll be using the whisk from now on. You should yeah. be. Yay. Thanks. That was an easy one. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you helped me. Sure. Pleasure. Thanks, right. Brandon. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you very much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Erica. Hi, Erica. Where are you calling from? Bucks County, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? I had a question about a root vegetable gratin that I made. It was one of the gratins where several different root vegetables were arranged very pretty in concentric circles and it looked really beautiful, but the milk and the cheese and the butter, when I served it, separated. So it was kind of watery with the milk solids floating around in there. A problem we have experienced many times. Um, a few questions. Are you using russets for potatoes? She said just root vegetables. Oh. Were there potatoes in there? Good question. So I did include two russets, hoping that the starch might help. Right. It was butternut squash, russet a sweet potato, and some of the larger-sized parsnips. And what kind of dairy did you have in it? 
I had whole milk, heavy cream, and butter that I simmered on a saucepan just to bring it up. So and it wasn't cold it, what was it. the proportion of milk to heavy cream? Three cups whole milk and one cup heavy cream. Was there cheese in it? Cheese on top, some and gruyere and pecorino. I would get rid of the milk or use okay. much less milk. The lower the fat of the dairy in a gratin dish, the more likely you'll have separation. Okay. The other way to do it is use a chicken or beef stock or vegetable stock with some heavy cream. That would also probably help. Okay. For cheese, um, you know, pecorino's an aged cheese and is not going to melt particularly well. So the fresher okay. the cheese, the better it melts. Uh, but I would think that it's really a question of the milk. There's three parts milk to one part heavy cream, and that maybe reverse it one part milk to three parts heavy cream or half and half. But the other thing is, since you've got a preponderance of root vegetables that are low in starch, including sweet potatoes, they don't have the mm-hmm. same kind of starch. That was the other issue there, too. You know, because they give off liquid. Mm. Think about it. So I'm not saying you should get rid of the root vegetables. I agree with Chris. I would up the cream and down the milk or do half cream, half, say, chicken broth, vegetable broth. Yeah. You know, if you want to use milk, fine, but you would, should almost make a bechamel, like thicken it. Because if you... That was going to be my follow-up. Yeah. yeah, you could do that. If you want to use milk, make it, turn it into a cream sauce. I, I do a velouté. Okay. I, I would do butter, flour, and then add chicken stock and use that as the base. That would be great. The difference between a velouté and a bechamel or a cream sauce is stock versus milk. So whatever you're looking for there. I was looking for the indulgent holiday variety. Oh, so maybe just, I'd go with Well, the get the milk out of there, man. Lose the milk. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> lose the milk. <laughs> lose that milk. Yeah. That would be the opposite to the advertising, which is got milk. Lose the milk. <laughs> lose the milk. Got lose cream. Milk. Yeah, yeah, got cream. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Got cream. I think we, uh, we've we got you all yeah. set. I think you're good to go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Bye. This is Mostly Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, it's Kathy in Southwest Florida. Hi, Kathy in Southwest Florida. How can we help you today? Well, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago or so about my problem with blueberry smoothies. Ah, yes. Let's just refresh the issue was that when you make blueberry smoothies, they just seem to be so thick. They absolutely gel. 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 Yeah. So you're trying to figure out what to do. And so you went back to the drawing board, and what happened? Well, I tried Chris's suggestion, which was to just not care. But that did not go over with my family one bit. Well, okay. <laughs> that, that was, but I had another suggestion, which was use a higher proportion of other fruit to blueberries. I think I also... Yes, uh, that I did not try. But what I did try was I let it set in the blender until it was getting thick. And then I just whirled it again. Yeah. And it broke it up, and it did not regel. Okay, that was my suggestion. Was I win. Okay. One for me. Oh, well, so, okay, so not caring wasn't the most brilliant No, that really doesn't sound like you either. <laughs> it um, sounds just like well, me. So, so letting, it, letting it gel and then whizzing it all over again did the trick. Exactly. Wonderful. Instead of, like, breaking a cornstarch yeah. gel. Yeah. Yeah. How did you figure that out? I don't know. I just thought, why not? Well, and that's there just, you go. Well, that's you one, one for you, And Sarah. I feel, I feel, yeah, you, you made me look good over here. And I, I, I've got to try to care more. <laughs> Okay, thanks, you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 
That's a that's a good one. Yeah, good for we, you. Yeah. I guess in cooking, very often when things thicken, we know if you disturb them too much, of they course. unthicken. So yes. I guess that's a logical thing. Yeah. But I didn't think of it. Well, it's like my father-in-law's theory was: if force doesn't work, apply more force. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> it's go. like fixing cars. Yeah. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Yasmin Khan. She's the author of Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza (laughs) i feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold allagash white is just (sighs) like you made it like you did your week you deserve this pizza you deserve this beer it's perfect in summer it's perfect in winter i haven't really found a flavor that i don't think works really well with allagash Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
we are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Yasmin Khan, who spent a decade working as a human rights campaigner In 2013, she switched careers and turned to food as a way to share people's stories. Her first cookbook was Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen. Her latest work is Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. Yasmin, how are you? I'm really well. Yeah, it's really nice to be speaking with you again. Yeah, I really enjoyed our first go-around. And uh, I did a little more research about you, and there was this little quote You spent long stretches of time on your grandparents' rice farm on the shores of the Caspian Sea. That sounds like a poem, the shores (laughs) of the Caspian Sea. So that just sounds remarkably wonderful. Uh, Was it as wonderful as it sounds? Yes. I mean, I I was very lucky in that respect in that my grandparents had a rice farm. And in fact, my uncles now continue that farm. And that meant that as a child, our summer holidays were spent these long stints of time with my cousins playing outside, picking pomegranates and apples or berries, um, scampering around the rice fields, trying to pick up watermelons the size of our forearms. It was it was it was just so joyful, I think. And it really installed in me a love of fresh produce and food from a really early age. I mean, I think anyone who's around farming develops, um, uh, yeah, a real reverence for, for food and how it's grown and the techniques. Uh, so I think that in that respect, it was as romantic as it sounds. So was this a typical flooded fields, the way they grow rice in most of the world? Or was this rice that, that grows on dry land? Yeah, exactly as you described it, flooded field. Yeah, hmm. And, you know, it's something that most people don't think of when you think of Iran because, you know, we imagine deserts or mountains. But the region of Iran where my family are from, on, on the shores of the Caspian Sea, it's subtropical. So there are tea plantations and rice paddies all around it, which makes the whole area so green and lush and very vibrant. So this new book, Zaytun, could you pronounce it for me so I get it right, by the way? Yeah, you got it right. Oh, Stay okay. tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah. Recipes and stories from the Palestinian kitchen. So is this sort of the Palestinian diaspora you're talking about? When you say Palestinian kitchen, what do you mean? The culture of, of Palestinian food? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So because of 
all the issues around that question, I chose for this book to focus on yeah the food and the culture that I found in Palestinian kitchens that I visited in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. I chose not to kind of look at the wider diaspora. For me, when I'm researching food or food cultures, I really like to be immersed in people's kitchens. And so I just took a geographical area and was like, okay, so this is what I'm going to represent as the Palestinian kitchen. And then I went off searching for all the delights within it. There was also um, the notion of hospitality. And there's an expression that translates, may you arrive as part of the family and tread an easy path as you enter. Uh, What is that expression and and what's the context for that quote? Yeah, so that is just one of my favorite expressions in um, Palestinian communities. It's alan wasalan. And honestly, you cannot as soon as you kind of go into the West Bank, you will hear this phrase from everybody, you know, whether it's someone who's a kanafi maker or a chubs baker, kanafi being the sweet dessert and chubs being the bread. You know, shopkeepers welcome it to you. People shout it at you uh, as you're walking down the street. It's really, it is incredibly welcoming. And I think that is something that um, whilst hospitality exists, you know, everywhere in the world, you don't, there are a few places, you know, I've travelled extensively in, in across different cultures and, and there are a few places that I think so exuberantly welcome people into their homes. It's really hard to to, to kind of be travelling through the West Bank and not get invited to someone's house for dinner very quickly. So here's a question. Why is falafel, at least in the United States, almost universally horrible? It's so bad. Oh the my fried God. chickpeas are dense, they're not fresh and light and fluffy the way they should be. I mean, it just seems like this this is not French cooking 801. You know, this is fairly basic and it's just not very good. So could you talk to me about what falafel ought to be, please? Oh, that's such a good question, Chris. You know, I never really got falafel until I first went to Israel and Palestine about a decade ago. You know, like you, I had it in, you know, in the States or in the UK and it's so mealy and dry. Right. Um, I never understood what all the fuss was about, kind of bland. Ugh. Uh, the texture was just horrible in my mouth. And then, you, you know, I'll never forget my first falafel that I had in Bethlehem. So you have a, a pocket of pita bread stuffed with three crunchy balls of chickpeas and that the exterior is crisp and the interior of the falafels are soft and hot and fragrant. You know, you can smell coriander, you can smell cumin. And I've put it down to a few things, really. You know, I've got a recipe for falafel in my book and anybody who tries it, I mean, it's so easy to make. You can have falafels you know, on your table in 20 minutes, Hmm. having just soaked them the night before. Um, And the key thing there, I think, is falafels have to be eaten fresh. They are a food that you can't reheat, that you can't have lying around. You fry them, you eat them. That way, they keep that gorgeous texture, but also they just need to be seasoned properly. Um, So often with legumes and pulses of all kinds, actually, I think, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, a lot of this health advice that people have that makes them afraid of salt. But, but, you know, any pulse or legume needs a generous amount of salting and fat in order to have flavor. Um, So let's talk about some other recipes I I thought were fascinating. Gazan smashed avocados. What's in that? 
Yeah. I think that one of the things that really struck me in the research of the book was how regional Palestinian cuisine was. And the food of Gaza actually, I think, is a perfect example of cuisine that just, I mean, it just stands out in terms of its unique attributes. The holy trinity of Gazan cuisine is copious amounts of dill, green chili and garlic that are smashed together. Um, I know Americans also don't tend to use pestle and mortars as much as as we do in Europe or in the Middle East. But, you know, you smash them with a pestle and mortar so that you get the the essential oils are released from the dill um, and it just becomes even more fragrant. I I didn't know dill. I'm surprised. Dill is a central herb in Palestinian cooking. In Gazan cooking, actually. Oh, not huh. You don't get it in the West Bank, you don't get it in the Galilee, huh. but in the food of Gaza. And so the, the Gazan cuisine is, is very spicy. It um, focuses a lot on seafood. Obviously, Gaza's along the coast. So historically, lots of sardines, lots of prawns. And I think that was the, the most fascinating discovery for me. So this uh, Gazan avocado dip uses yeah these flavours again, the, the garlic, the green chilli, and... Then it uses labna, which is this strange mm-hmm. yogurt, which is so easy to make. Quick pickled avocados. That sounded interesting to me. Yeah, it's that I think is a recipe that has, I get a lot of comments on it. You know, we've all been in that situation where, say, you were going to use some avocados that evening. Um, say you've got people around for dinner, but the avocados are firm and like, what do you do? So I've got a recipe for a quick pickled avocado, which you just need to pickle them for two hours. And by the end of it, they are soft. Hmm. uh, They're quite aromatic because of the cilantro seeds um, and garlic and, and again, dill that I put in them. And it's a really great little, little trick if you just want to have a little, little fun, fun thing on the table. An olive fig and honey tapenade. That sounds uh, remarkable. I I love the olive and fig combination. That sounds great. Yeah, I love the saltiness and the and the sweet combination. Um, you know, I called the book Zaytun because Zaytun means olive in Arabic and olives on olive trees are really perhaps the most emblematic ingredient of Palestinian culture. Most Palestinian families have olive trees and the olive harvest, which takes place around October, November. It's a real time of celebration and community gathering. Um, and really, extra virgin olive oil uh, is what makes a lot of Palestinian food as fantastic as it is. It's used as a, as a dressing and um, to top many, many savoury kind of stews or vegetable sides, as well as, you know, the classic salad. So, you know, I wanted in the book to put as many recipes in that really celebrated this ingredient and this Olive fig and caper tapenade came from a trip I, I, I made with the Canaan Group, which are a fair trade association working in the north of the West Bank, working with Palestinian farmers to export their goods. And it was there that I realised that, you know, Palestinians have wild capers that uh, that grow throughout the West Bank. And what Canaan was trying to do was to try and encourage Palestinians to kind of, yeah, support their own economy and, and use these ingredients that we might not traditionally associate with Middle Eastern food. But, you know, it's growing there naturally. So that's what inspired that recipe. Desserts. Uh, Sweets in the Middle East tend to be something in the afternoon, right, with a cup of coffee or tea. I I gather people don't really have dessert the way we have dessert here, but you have some recipes in the book. 
Uh, you have a spice pumpkin, olive oil, and orange cake. It seems like olive oil is becoming the hot ingredient for cakes these days. It's, it's actually quite <laughs> good. But is, is, that, is olive oil in a cake something that anyone would actually bake in the Middle East, or was this something that you just came up with? Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, traditionally, olive oil was the oil of the Middle East. But as you said, you know, the region doesn't have a, a huge dessert culture in the way that we're used to it. You know, uh, a meal is often ended with a tea or coffee and perhaps, you know, a date or perhaps a little square of a baklava or semolina cake. But, you know, there are lots of really exciting desserts. Um the, I included in the book things like an apricot and rosewater rice pudding mm. uh, that's incredibly creamy and rich, uh, fragranced with crushed cardamom seeds um, and obviously a hint of, of rosewater. And then also matabak, which I think is probably my favourite. Uh, yeah, it's the favourite sweet dish that I discovered and it's from Jerusalem and they are kind of sweet and sticky cheese-filled parcels that are topped with, again, a cardamom sugar syrup and you kind of you crunch into them with your fork, you know, hearing that sound of the pastry. And then inside is this, again, warm, melted cheese. Mm. And oh, they are to die for. You just went off into La La Land briefly. <laughs> I know. And isn't it wonderful that food can make us do that? It, it's, it's better than reality. Let me put it like that. Oh, um, that's for sure. Uh, your takeaway from Zaytun, from this work you did in, in the Galilee, West Bank and Gaza Strip, was there something, some moment there that kind of summed up the experience for you or was particularly memorable? Yeah, perhaps the the moment that stands out to me the most is when I was interviewing a man named Omar in Gaza. And I, I couldn't visit Gaza because it's blockaded um, by land and sea. And so with kind of no movement of people in or out. And so I conducted my interviews for that bit of research over Skype. And it was a very emotional experience to interview Omar. We bonded immediately over our love of Pakistani food because my father's Pakistani and he was kind of asking me lots of tips about kind of different curries and what he likes to make. And um, then, you know, as, as our conversation turned on to food, it became so apparent to me that there were so many challenges in his day-to-day -day life um, that affected his ability to access food, his ability to enjoy the food he ate. Um, we were discussing a carrot recipe that we both really liked and how carrots are, uh, you know, an ingredient that you can have, have so much versatility. And he was saying, well, actually, you know, I grow carrots, but, you know, we're here, we're a bit worried that the soil is tainted with white soft phosphorus, so we don't know if the carrots are safe. And I just thought, God, everywhere else in the world, you know, the idea of growing a vegetable in your garden would only be something that gave you health and here it's something that's of cause to concern so yeah that was the most emotional interview I think and what made it so special was actually how incredibly life-affirming he was um, Omar was so excited to be able to talk to me about his culture so proud of Garzan's culinary heritage and so excited to try and I guess talk about it with the hope that people would hear about it and see people in Gaza as, as not just a statistic on the news, but really people who love life and love their food. Yasmin, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you here on Milk Street. Thanks so much, Chris. That was food writer Yasmin Khan. Her new book is called Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. 
Here's a quote, and you tell me who it's from. We keep moving forward, opening new doors, and doing new things because we're curious, and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. Well, that was, oddly enough, Walt Disney. Not the first person I would have chosen as a philosopher, but he was indeed correct. You know, in the kitchen, we learned that the cooks of the Middle East use the spice blend sitar to transform roast chicken. They add sweet and sour pomegranate molasses to stir fries. Dill is a central culinary herb instead of basil or parsley. And they make vegetables the centerpiece of the dinner table. You know, the world is full of new paths in very old cultures. We just have to take the time to find them. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Austrian goulash. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Um, as you know, I have in-laws in Austria and Salzburg, and there's lots of great food there. Obviously, the desserts aren't bad, but they have Tafelspitz boiled meat, which I actually love. But they also have a goulash, but it's very different than Hungarian goulash, which is more of a soup. This is thicker. It's based on paprika. It has some caraway in it. But the thing about it that's really wonderful, it has a rich, buttery foundation to it. It's not thin. And so, of course, in my enthusiasm for all things Austrian, we thought we'd make an authentic Austrian goulash. So how do we get started? Well, Chris, the first step is, of course, getting to the bottom of that sauce. And it's a pretty you know, classically made sauce. We start with a roux. So we had tried some shortcuts. We tried not thickening it at all, and that was too watery. We tried a cornstarch slurry, and that didn't add any flavor. So we went back to the beginning, and we just sauteed some onions and butter, cooked in some flour, and that made a nice thick roux. Now, in order to add some flavor to that, we added caraway seeds and paprika, because of course paprika is the star of goulash. There's five tablespoons of paprika in this dish. The majority is sweet paprika, but we do add one tablespoon of hot paprika just for a little bit of kick. Now, here at Milk Street, we don't saute our meat for stews. We often use water instead of stock. We do things a little bit differently. In other words, stews for us are actually pretty simple to make. So how do we do that part? So we broke one of your rules, Chris, but not both of them. So we did use a store-bought stock. We just really wanted that extra meaty flavor here. But for this recipe, you start making the roux. You don't have to brown the meat. So once the roux is made, you add a little tomato paste and some marjoram and bay leaves. You whisk in your broth, and then you just nestle some beef chuck right in and and cook it from there. You don't have to brown it at all. But we want the meat to brown, so how do we get that? Yes, of course. So it spends two hours covered in the oven, but then for that last hour of cooking, we remove the lid, and that gives us a nice browning on top. So we have a simple stew, but it has that depth of flavor with the paprika. It has that butteriness from the roux. It has a little caraway. You can also serve it with dill, which is the favorite thing to serve anything with except desserts in Austria. Catherine, thank you very much. Uh, An authentic Austrian goulash and not hard to make. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Austrian goulash at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we present three tips for making the most out of a dull knife. That's after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Day Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah and I will take more of your culinary questions. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Amy from Boston. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm a huge fan of the show. I work in sustainable dining, and I recently tried some local sustainable fish from some fishermen in the area. One of the species was dogfish, also known as Cape Shark. And I tried it prepared in a bunch of different ways, but I couldn't get over that distinct shark fish-related flavor. I'm wondering if you guys have any tips for potentially neutralizing that flavor or preparing dogfish in a way to make it more appealing. And how would you describe that flavor? Here we go. <laughs> or, is it, or is it something you can't um, really repeat on the air? No, I, I can repeat it. You know, there's a, like a, I guess it's subtle enough, an ammonia flavor associated uh-huh. with it. And I think a lot of shark species have that flavor. Hmm. Do you know if it's very, very fresh when you buy it? It is fresh. They brought it straight from the boat and prepared it in front of us. Well, I'm no expert on fishing, but I think this is a problem of no urinary tract in the dogfish, right? I mean, it's sort of excreted through the skin. And so I think this is a fish that needs to be gutted or field dressed, as they would say in Vermont, blood chilled very quickly because you have that in the skin. Yeah. One thing we used to do at uh, the last restaurant I worked at was anything that had an aroma and including some things that didn't but might eventually, we would soak in milk. And Oh, interesting. Kind of like garlic. I guess. I haven't actually done that with garlic. And this was prepared by chefs, you know, that knew what they were doing. I just couldn't see how I could make other Americans like it. Did they gut it and bleed it right after they caught it, do you know? Yeah, they supposedly they prepared it in a way that was, you as, know, as correct fresh. for yeah. serving dogfish. 
I don't think they were soaking it in milk. So that might be a good step for yeah, give it a, me give it, to take and trying to market it. Give it a couple of hours. And then, you know, I'd prepare it in a way that sort of hides its flavor, like maybe batter and fry it or something like that, you know. So it's um, yeah. there's other things going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm hoping to see it become a more popular item, and this might be another step we have to take to get it there. Right. Well, when you serve your dogfish burger, Sarah, you can <laughs> you can be forced. <laughs> well, I to can lie. rush right over. Okay. Rush right over, Amy. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Okay, so I found the recipe, and it calls for carob molasses. This is a really exotic ingredient that I can't find anywhere locally, and online it's pretty expensive. So I was wondering, could I substitute regular molasses, or is there a way to doctor regular molasses to give it something like a carob flavor? Well, I mean, carob molasses has a chocolate flavor for obvious reasons. It's made from carob pods. Molasses is made by boiling down sugar as part of that process, which obviously has its own flavor, depending on whether it's light or dark. Right. The recipes you're talking about called for carob, you're saying? It calls for carob molasses, so I wondered if there was a workaround. Wow. I would just use regular molasses, and I probably just would understand. use a lighter molasses instead of a really Got a dark different one. Profile. It's just different. Or here's another idea. I'm assuming this is a Middle Eastern recipe. Is that correct? That is correct. Then use pomegranate molasses. That's very appropriate. It's fabulous. Oh, it yeah. is fabulous. It idea. is fabulous. So do you think the uh, pomegranate molasses would be probably better than just using regular molasses, yes. right? Yes. I, well, I, it's much more complex. It's got a sourness to it. It's got a brightness to it. It's a richness. It. It's, it's fruitier. Oh, yeah, it's sort of like... You. It's pomegranate juice instead of sugar cane It's juice. sort of a little bit of balsamic vinegar in that it's rich and thick, and but it's. Okay. I think it's brighter. I think it's really fun. And if you want the world's best vinaigrette, add about a teaspoon to your vinaigrette recipe. What a it, nice idea. Yeah, it really... <gasps> What a great I use idea. it all the time. Yeah. It's worth having. And the thing that you. you said this is a Middle Eastern, it's appropriate. It's a Middle Eastern ingredient. Yeah, I so. think that's... Good job. Right. Nicely done. Great. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. That's really helpful. Take okay. care, sure. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here is this week's Milk Street Basic. Here's a little-known fact. 70% of home cooks never sharpen their knives, which means that most of your kitchen knives are probably pretty dull. So here are three quick tips for using a dull knife and actually getting good and safe results. First, use the middle of the blade, not the tip. The tip tends to get dull faster. Second, when it comes to vegetables and fruit, make sure to cut from the flesh side, not the skin side. Finally, you should learn to slice through, not cut down or chop. That'll help you get right through the meat cleanly and easily. For more culinary tips, go to our website, 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's time for Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I don't know. That's why I call you every once in a while to find out uh, how I'm doing, right? I'm going to tell you you're doing great, and I want to talk about how a lot of the news talking about the fact that we're all dangerously dehydrated and that we need to panic is not something you need to worry about. 
Well, you know, I, I sort of came to that conclusion myself, but I'd like to hear the, uh, the scientific reason. Well, there's been more news than I would say usual, even though it, this feels like a cyclical thing, warning us of the dangers of dehydration. I think a lot of this came out of a review of studies that was published that actually argued that being dehydrated leaves, leads to cognitive decline uh, and that people need to worry. And given, I think, how much cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease and dementia is in the news these days, it got picked up by a lot of the media and everybody began pushing the idea that if we just drink more water, that somehow we could stave off cognitive decline and that we would all do better mentally. And unfortunately, as with many things we discussed, this is just greatly overblown and the benefits are just not going to be there. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I swim a few times a week, like half a mile, mm-hmm. right? And I notice there are people with these huge containers of water sitting yep. at the end of the lane. And these are people who swim for maybe 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Yeah. And I just think, like, they they, they could wait a minute to go upstairs to the yeah. water fountain in, in the locker room. I mean, do you really need to drink, you know, in between laps? I don't know. No. And at, at the you know, that the study that, that actually a lot of the, the research that this was based on, they take people and they force them to exercise pretty strenuously in heat and then refuse to let them drink for like, let's say, eight hours or a full day. And then they give them tests and they show that they don't perform as well on the tests after this occurs. And my gut instinct <laughs> is to say, well, of course, if I ran a marathon and then you wouldn't let me drink, I have no doubt I would be distracted and I wouldn't be able to perform as well on a math test right. uh, at that moment. But that's not the same thing as saying if you're just sitting in an office or going to school, that if you're not careful, you're going to get dangerously dehydrated and you're going to develop dementia. Uh, this is really over-extrapolating the research. But but also the question is, maybe we talked about this before, but the amount of water you consume is not a function just of a glass of water. Many beverages are mostly water, and the fruits and vegetables have water, right? Absolutely. Yes, and if you go if you go back to the original guidelines that sort of gave us the whole craze of how much eight glasses of water or 64 ounces of water a day, uh, it says that's an average number that they truly just were making up out of thin air, but an average amount of water that they thought you should get in a day. But it says in that same guideline that, of course, most people are going to get that in a normal diet because, as you say, there's water in juice, there's water right. in coffee, there's water in tea, there's even water in bed, there's water in vegetables and fruits. And if you just eat a normal diet, you're going to be fine. The body is exquisitely designed to keep you from getting dehydrated. When you're thirsty, you're nowhere near dehydrated. It's preparing far ahead. And even if you were, your body would take steps to still prevent that dehydration by reducing the amount of urine you might have uh, or, or, or taking you know, other things to try to keep you from getting into dehydration. Dehydration is not this sort of vague term. It has a specific medical meaning. Usually you worry when people have lost 3 to 5% of their body weight in water. Mm. And if you think about, let's say, a 100-pound woman, for instance, that means losing 3 to 5 pounds of weight in water. You would notice that. That wouldn't be something that happened by mistake while you were there. You would have to be running, again, running a marathon. or So this is not, and you would also not feel well you would probably, you know, really feel sick and weak. It wouldn't be something where by mistake this happened to you and you didn't notice. So a lot of these fears are just way overblown. Now, is there something, though, more modest where you haven't lost five or six pounds of body weight in water, but you're just not getting enough water and maybe that causes headaches or whatever? Is there a milder form of this? 
Sure. And it, it, theoretically, yes, it's possible that if you're not drinking enough, you would start to feel it by by a headache or if I'd be feeling sluggish. But again, that's more where people are talking about chronic dehydration as opposed to acute dehydration. And again, it's just not as common as we think. Now, having said that, doctors will often start with, why don't you drink a little more whenever you have symptoms? Because it's something easy and cheap that we can recommend. Uh, and it often just symptoms go away. And now we've accomplished something. Um, and it is possible that sometimes people are not drinking enough. But again, your body warned you, you fixed it. It's not something you need to worry about. And it certainly shouldn't be linked to something like cognitive decline. Moreover, if you look at sort of the way that often this is marketed in the media and often by sort of fad diets, people talk about preventing cancer or diabetes or heart disease or even reducing your risk of death drinking by just by drinking more water. And I promise you, if this were true, we would shout it from the rooftops. We would have massive public health campaigns uh, to try to get everyone to drink, 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 because we could make such a huge difference if people would just would drink more. It's the... This is the easiest it's ever been in the history of man to get our hands on water, especially in the United States. We have no trouble with it. It's ubiquitous. It's cheap. People have access to it. They are not dropping all over the place of dehydration. It's not this magical elixir, which is just going to cure whatever ails you. Now, maybe I'm just cynical, but I remember back in the 70s and 80s when this idea of water sort of came out of nowhere. Remember, it was mm -hmm. no one was talking yep. about dehydration. All of a sudden they were. And that was exactly the same time the large companies were starting to sell bottled water. Is there, <laughs> is there no, a No, no, you're not here? cynical at all. Absolutely. In fact, if you look, and this is unfortunate, but if you look at most of the research, it is almost all funded by, by companies or you know subsidiaries of companies that actually sell bottled water. Of course. So there's a definite vested interest in trying to push people to, to drink more water because they're assuming you're not going to get it from a tap. They're assuming you're going to buy it from someone. Um, and so there's huge conflicts of interest here. But even if you get outside the conflicts of interest, you're exactly right. There's just as water has become more and more and more available, somehow we've gotten more and more scared that we're just not getting enough of it and that somehow that is the reason for all the health problems that we're seeing. Let's own the fact, first of all, we're about as healthy, if not healthier, than we've ever been. <laughs> you know, people are dying of almost any disease you can imagine at lower rates by age. This is the healthiest we've ever been. We're not dehydrated. We've got plenty of water, so that's not even the cause. Uh, but you're right. It's industry, and I think it's often people trying to make a buck, even if it's through advice, trying to get you to believe otherwise. So the next time my wife yells at me about not drinking water with dinner, I'll just have another glass of wine. Exactly. You can tell her I said so. <laughs> I'm going to. Good. Dr. Carroll, thank, thank you. you so much. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. You know, a health expert once told me that coffee was modern society's biggest health risk. And my wife tells me that kombucha is a magic health elixir. And I've been urged to consume biodynamic wines, chia seeds, cacao nibs, yogurt, kefir, kimchi, mangosteen, kumis, and lubna. Finally, my doctor told me recently that I needed vitamin D, but I simply ignored him. In fact, I now ignore all health advice. I drink water when I'm thirsty, I enjoy wine with food, I eat cacao in my chocolate mousse, and I threw out the mangosteen. After all, it's pretty simple. Cook and enjoy good food. That's the eternal prescription. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
please remember to subscribe. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And of course, thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tube Up Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.